You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome back to Fight in Progress. This is one of your hosts, Susan Simmons. Morning, Tom. Good morning, Susan. I'm back. I wasn't here last week. <laughs> Chemo kicked my butt last week. <laughs> Dang it. I hate that crap. And you pay a lot of money for this stuff to do. You know. You had to feel like crap? Yeah. And you pay for it. <laughs> you're like, dang, they ought to just give you this stuff for free. Jeez. It should be as punishment, uh, not, I, not for free, because who would want to take it? Right? I don't know, but I don't know what I've done to deserve it. But I'll just tell you this much. I'm about done with it. I got a. 15 more to go, two down, oh. 15 to go. Yay. <laughs> anyway, we had a full day yesterday with the Phoenix Police Academy. Teaching. And they had more than five in the class, yes, which was good. they did. But I, I did notice they didn't have the 17. And I'm not sure. I think we ran one off. That's what I think, too. I meant to ask them before we left because he packed up his stuff about halfway through and was like, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> and he'd been there since September so. If the rest of them haven't run him off. But I was known for that in Alabama, down at Selma Trooper Academy. <laughs> Chiefs would call me, why are you running my people off? And I'm like, hey, if they can't hear what I got to say. If they can't hear the truth. Yeah, need them to go move on, move on. And so, yeah, it was kind of an interesting day. And as Mark Valenzuela pointed out, it's a different environment in the academy when they it, can fall asleep on the front row. It is. And I know who you're talking about. Well, there were several, but yeah. one in particular. And I just kept thinking, I, you know, I just don't have it in me to disturb this. Because <laughs> honestly, I'm just to that point, I don't know that I really care. Yeah. Because I'm not sure they'll make it through FTO anyway. Uh, there's a good chance that that won't happen. And they, you know, the new recruits, bless their hearts, if they're not military, they literally sit and they're looking at you like you're speaking a foreign language. <laughs> oh, my. And I thought, this is far. I mean, I get it when it's the first two weeks of the academy. I get that because they're still in shell shock of whatever. But they've been there since September. And yeah. I'm thinking, I'm not sure we're registering with Several of them. Yeah, there's some. There's something missing. There. There's a disconnect of yeah. ex life experience, or I, I don't know. I couldn't put my finger on it. I can't wait to talk to the guys at the academy this coming <laughs> weekend. I will be seeing them at something, and it's like, well, okay, we'll see what they think. Because I was like, ooh, this is a little scary. I'm glad they're not Gilbert recruits, but whatever. <laughs> and we are excited to announce we have gotten the contract with Maricopa County Sheriff's Office for some of their in-service training. Uh, unofficially, uh, I guess the chiefs and don't things don't think it's necessary to let me know that we've got it, but everybody else is telling me. So any MCSO deputies out there, we are coming to your neighborhood. Watch out. Like we hadn't already been there, but <laughs> at least in your academy. We hadn't been in your academy. So what else do we need to cover today? It's firefighter, cancer. What is it, Joel? Yes. Come on, Joel. Jump in here, producer man. Cancer Awareness Month. Awareness Month. We're a little late to the show, given it's the 25th of January, but hey, better late than never, right? But we have had 
a bunch of firefighters on. So we're doing it. Right. We're doing it. We just didn't tell people right. it was their month. Right. And we even talked about it with the two firefighters, the last two firefighters. Right. So. Okay. All right. As long as so, you all talked about it. I know we talked about it with one. And again, right. I wasn't here last week. But um, all right. So we have a guest today that, how long ago did I meet you? Oh, my. Probably about a year ago. I was going to say, time gets away from me, but, you <laughs> about know, a year ago. could have been six weeks ago. And, and it was kind of like when I first heard what you were talking about, it was like, there's somebody actually that really talks about this. How about that? What a concept. <laughs> I, I was shocked. <laughs> so tell us your name and your background and how you wound up here in our podcast studio. Well, my name is Cleo Lewis. I'm an outreach pastor that works around the West Valley. And I have to ask, you spell it L-E-W-I-S, don't you? L-E-W-I-S. We must be related because you know yes. that's my maiden name. I, I absolutely. I, are you from Joe the Lewis South? Is a stranger. Are you from the <laughs> South? Uh, as a matter of fact, my family is from the North and the South. Half mm -hmm. from the South be Louisiana, spelled the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, from they, the oh, they got to do that French. Yeah, they yeah, do that French whatever. Thing. Yeah, well, they think that <laughs> and, makes them special in Louisiana, but yeah, the other half in Michigan. Well, you uh, you probably got some migrating around in the well, South Carolina. I'm pretty sure we're related. Georgia region. I just don't know how related. I know. I know. We'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> Lunchtime, will tell us. That's it. <laughs> For, so, for uh, the audience, it's like a, a splitting image here. So. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, that being said, uh, you know, I am an outreach pastor. I kind of look at spiritual wellness as a big thing. Amen. But I also find a lot of other things that come into that dynamic. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm that left field type person. I'm out left field. Not leftist. Yes. But left field. Left field. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want to lose the audience. Yeah. What's going on out here? And uh, based on my experience as being a former police officer, mm -hmm. uh, I bring a lot to the table when we talk about employee wellness or what happens when everything else goes bad? There you go. <laughs> Which happens a lot. Uh, happened to me. I hear you. Uh, I look at, everybody talks about this guy named Pete Rose. <laughs> and when you say Cleo Lewis, some people say, well, there's an asterisk there. <laughs> and the asterisk is for a lot of people, not so much the incredible stuff that I do today. Mm-hmm. But what happened when it all went bad? Yeah, but don't you think it had to go bad for you to get to where you are today, though? It did for me. It did for, for uh, me, too. For the entourage, no, it never goes bad. Right. But it does. Right. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, or at least that's what they tell you. <laughs> it <Yeah>. sounds good. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody says uh, in public. But in private, it's a different story. Sure. Sure. So tell us about your law enforcement background and all that good stuff and how you... Wound up here. Wow. Uh, started out as a Phoenix police officer. <laughs> that speaks uh, volumes right there. Yeah. Came back from the military. I was just looking for a job. Mm -hmm. uh, thought I was going to get a job with the U.S. Marshal Service. And the president at that time closed recruiting <laughs> for the federal government. I was going to say, I yeah. think DEA had the freeze in, yeah. FBI, yeah. everybody had so the freeze So I went in. down to the department. I said, well, 
well, let's see if I can get a job here. And I got a job in the academy because I was prior military. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, the physical part surprised me yeah. because they really emphasized on being in physical shape. Uh, so it's so, a paramilitaristic. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that is not the case today. Yeah, I'd like to go on record changing. his saying yeah. that uh, ain't it. <laughs> we were prepared for the big fight physically. Mm-hmm. That's what our career is designed around. That sure. big, incredible fight that we could have. Sure. And for a lot of people, I kind of find out whether you wear Kevlar or Nomax, that's what you're prepared for. Yes. That one big incident. But what happened to me in my life was a lot of little things caught up with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, marriage, career, started out working. Women are ruining you. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> uh, I had a good marriage, but career, uh, yeah. it was up and down, rocky. Sure. But uh, work patrol, then started out to work gangs. So I went from a very stable patrol environment to a unstable detective <laughs> type environment chaos well uh, and and loose cannon do what you got to do when you got to do it how you got to do it well absolutely and then all of a sudden i went undercover and going with, from a, wait with how much time on uh i probably went undercover probably five years wow you know, okay. five to six years undercover was different than it is now mm-hmm. because what undercover was back then we would just particularly just take the uniform off mm-hmm. and put the blue jeans on. Sure. Uh, and some training, but not a lot. What year was this? Uh, my good year, probably 1988. My bad year, 1989. Okay. <laughs> so that's some hey, you history. you got 12 months yeah. out of it. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it was what, what, when people say back in the day, mm-hmm. it was sincerely back in the day. Sure. So... Uh, they sent me out. I stood in a line. The game plan was simple. Mm-hmm. We had gang members taking over the city projects, and the city finally acknowledged that there was a gang problem out there. No, it's wow. never been one prior to that. I'm never sure. Been. No, of course, <laughs> not not until these nice, enterprising people from California came out here to shoot at our fire truck. They were wearing blue shirts. The fire truck, of course, happened to be red. <laughs> Uh, Pretty big target, too. Yeah, so all of a sudden, uh, somebody smarter than us just said, we think there are some dynamics going on there. So they sent us out to capture these groups of individuals that were doing it. So the the game plan was go make drug buys, Mm -hmm. do a search warrant, and then the trick was surprise, we're the police. So you're going to tell us everything about the people that sold you the drugs, Mm -hmm. and we were going to move up the chain, so to speak. That was the game plan. But the reality was we just kept catching a whole bunch of little fish in a big pond. (laughs) I have to ask, again, having been married to DEA, at that same time period, because we moved to Montgomery in 88. Yeah from New Orleans uh, for him to open the office there. How did you disconnect your undercover life and your profe- and your personal life at that time? We didn't. You didn't? We, we didn't know how to do that. Did you talk to her about it, though, and tell her, warn her and tell her she had to be 
aware of her surroundings and things just in the event? No. Wow. All it was was this is what I do. Mm-hmm. And it, it it never turned into a family discussion uh, because it never actually turned into to a professional discussion. Uh, there was no such thing as an undercover school back then. Right. <laughs> Uh, it's, this is what you're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And we didn't have a fail safe. Hey, what, this is what we do. I was on a task force. We had DEA agents. Sure. Uh, they done undercover operations completely different than we did. Oh yeah. Uh, meaning for people that may not understand it, we would do the hand to hand Mm -hmm. from the city type police enforcement style DEA agents usually used informants to do the hand-to-hand. Yes. It's a lot safer. Mm -hmm. Well, Uh, and they had the training at the federal level, but... Absolutely. So so you're telling me your wife didn't ever wind up on a surveillance video like I did. (laughs) Not that I know, because we we really didn't have a capacity. We weren't doing long-range investigations. Uh We were doing short-range investigations, hoping that we can plug a fish... That's why with you got long the, range options. That's why you got the little fish. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you put a little hook hmm. with a little piece of bait in. Right, go get the little that's fish. It. We, it, we were actually trying to catch little fish with a big pole. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's just something when I look back at it, uh-huh. uh, if it wasn't for the consequences mm-hmm. that could happen when it goes wrong, yeah. it was comical when I look right. back at it today because... Because of my experience, I'm actually invited back to help train nice. the next group of undercover officers in different jurisdictions. Nice. <laughs> and here's how not to do it. Absolutely. <laughs> here's how not to do this. Uh, well, don't, I think... <laughs> don't watch Starsky and Hutch. <laughs> Miami Vice. Yeah, uh, those were my training films. Uh, you know. Well, and if they get family involved... Let me know. I'll come in and I can do the family section of what not to do. <laughs> yeah, it, and it, Family matters because I, when you're undercover, you've changed from that corporate police mm-hmm. type environment to a chaotic, you were working 12 hours. Uh, but nobody knows which 12 hours you're working. That's it. And your wife doesn't know what you were doing, or who you were with. Right. And you've got to answer those questions inside that little, either a living room or an arena, depending (laughs) on how you want to look at it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And sometimes my living room turned into an arena. Sure. Uh, And the only drug that you can use as an undercover officer is alcohol. Mm -hmm. If you use anything else, problems are going to come. Yeah, and it yeah. always bothered me. I couldn't just run around and tell everybody Marshall was a DEA agent doing undercover work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah, it, it, the surprising thing was, but we could. Sure. As a, as a police officer was, we never thought that most people should know what we were doing. Right. But we wanted to tell everybody what we were doing. Absolutely. This because, is the cool kids stuff. Yeah, this yeah. was cool. Uh, and... You know, you get your own car. Sure. Uh, you're riding around. People stop you. Uh, you can sneak and show them your badge. And then there was times 
you didn't have a badge. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was confusing. So back then, what happened to me was regular drug bus, uh, middle part of the week. It was I was going to stand in line with a whole bunch of other people that were planning on buying crack cocaine. We had to target being we expected a minority community member, potential gang member, to be running a drug house. Hmm. I go up to a house after waiting in line. And, and let me go back a little ways, because when you first start this, you're wearing your Levi's, mm -hmm. your button-up T-shirt. You're probably carrying two or three guns. But when you get comfortable doing it, then you try to regress back to a pair of shorts, flip-flops, and what we call a wife beater, which is just yep. a, a glorified <laughs> athletic shirt. That was my uniform of the day. Yep. And my can of Budweiser. And you could be anybody you wanted to be, and this is all legit. Absolutely. You can be the badass cussing at the cop. Yeah, absolutely. You, whatever. So yeah. I, I go up there to make this buy, and I see these people that are in this house uh they looked colombian they didn't look like the people we expected to be that's not a good sign yeah. prudence should have told me to turn around and leave <laughs> yeah no kidding however the i've got to do this deal mechanic that gets into the cop I've got to win this mm -hmm. at all costs. Even yeah. if he looks like Pablo Escobar. It doesn't matter. <laughs> if it's Pablo Escobar. Or Juan happy, Valdez yes. and his donkey. Happy days. <laughs> I, I'm going to get him. It's like you're going to be surprised in about three days. And I, I moved forward with it. My cover officer was probably on the way to get burritos. That's how casual we had gotten. That's what we were going to eat for lunch. He's already on the way. I'm doing a dope deal. The person responsible for my safety is somewhere else, uh, but not close enough to where he could see me. Now, what gangs are here at that time that you're really even looking at? I mean, are we talking about the traditional ones out of California? Oh, or? it's Crips and Bloods. Okay, that's uh, all it was. Th those that those were our target members. groups, and anybody that would associate with them mm -hmm. near and afar that we could classify as a gang. Okay. Uh, the So these people weren't in my target area, but they're major players. They look like major players. Sure. So all of a sudden, I said, well, I'm going to go do this. I go in. The guy looks at me. Now, for the purpose of this podcast, I'm right around 200 pounds. But let's go back to my 19, my circa 1989 look. <laughs> I had muscles. I had a big afro. Uh, <laughs> that I'm having a hard time. I, yeah. yeah, it's hard to work. I really it's, am struggling hard, with this one. <laughs> work with me. It's hard to work. It, it, was it one of those kid and play? <laughs> no, I just had the big round fluffy afro, and uh, rather than just the big round ball head. Uh huh. But I, I go in here and I got my game face on, and the guy looks at me. He says, "You don't look like." all these other people. And I'm thinking one of these things is not like the other is my song, not him. <laughs> so he doesn't look like anybody else I've ever encountered either. So I think we have something in common. Sure. <laughs> so I, I look at this person. I, he said, well, what are you here for? 
So I tell him I'm here to buy some crack. He said, well, what are you going to do with it? Because I didn't look like all the other emaciated people in that line that were going to smoke crack. True, true. Uh, I, I was just amazed that he saw that because most people only look at your hands. Quite a businessman he was. Yeah. Uh, he was ahead of the game. I wasn't. Something told me I still should have turned around. But <laughs> this I is couldn't. a challenge now. My ego <laughs> was so yeah. far ahead of me to where I had to win. Now this. you're in it. That's yeah. it. I, I was finished to win it. So he says, well, have you ever smoked this? And I said, no, I, I, I never have, and I'm not today. It, that, still, that still echoes in my mind. I bet. That... Uh, and then I thought, if this doesn't go the way I planned, I'm going to win this. Now, although we're doing the podcast today, I thought that I would probably get a royalty for hold my beer because that's the best plan I had. <laughs> I was going to say, hold my beer. And I was going to hand this guy my beer. And when he grabbed a beer, I was going to punch him and run out the door. Sure. When I got ready, he said, well, you need to smoke this today. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to smoke crack today. Uh, and we were arguing over that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, hold my beer. I was getting ready to hand him my beer. And when I got ready to hand him my beer, I hear a metallic clack. Uh, it was a, and then I thought, is that a clack or a click? That doesn't matter if it's a clack or a click right now. We're Coming not, from the same thing. Yeah, we're not writing a police report. It's reality. I heard something that made me think I knew that there was a gun pointed at the back of my head. As Gunny Highway would say, that is an unmistakable sound yeah. of your enemy's preferred weapon. It was an AK-47. I heard bolt. Kind of like that in a shotgun, pump-action shotgun. You, yeah. don't mis yeah. you, don't, you don't misunderstand yeah. those. You don't. You heard it once. And I heard that, <laughs> and I said, hand me that pipe. So he loaded the uh, dope on the pipe. He let the dope. Now, casually, I've never been in that type of situation. No one's ever talked to me about that type of situation. Uh I knew I was going to be using some. Uh, in your mind, it's, are you faking this or is this real? Right. It was quite real. Now, are you wired up at all? No. Okay. All right. No. I, I, this was the only thing on I, your own, buddy. Yeah, You're the, there. The, my greatest line of defense <laughs> was a beer can. Wow. And actually... I enjoyed drinking beer more than I did anything else. It took a lot just to hand him, hand him that beer. I wanted that beer. But, Might be worth getting shot over. <laughs> yeah, when I wasn't even thinking at that time that I'm going to get killed here. I was thinking, I got to get out of here. Mm -hmm. And people said, well, what was the impact of that? Well, I got so high, I can tell you the brand name of Jesus Christ Shoes. Wow. Wow. I could tell you what brand name of sandals he had. Wow. But what I did know about crack cocaine for all the th things that we thought we knew, I didn't know that you come down. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, I came down pretty quickly. Hmm. And then it was like, well, are you going to sell me my dope now? <laughs> so I finished the dope deal. I stagger out. I get to where my cover officer is. 
where I'm going to get picked up at. And I told him what happened. Mm -hmm. He says, well, you don't look high. And then the delusion started. Well, maybe I didn't actually do this. I don't know if the delusion was because of the situation or my process, my process to try to legitimize what happened. Sure. So I got back to the station, told my sergeant, I still look at the way his eyes got so big. <laughs> they drug tested me that day. Wow. But drug tests weren't as reliable back then mm -hmm. uh, in the late 80s as they are now. They actually came back and told me, hey, uh, your drug test didn't come back. Uh, you didn't come back positive. Hmm. I use that excuse. But did you start to think, too, they sold you a, a bag of goods? <laughs> well, I didn't know. I, I, was, I, I couldn't tell. I mean, we never knew whether it was good dope or not, nor did we really care. Sure. We thought it was dope. It sure. looked like dope. It had the character of dope. Maybe it's dope. Sure. Uh, so uh, wow. part of my delusion was, well, maybe it didn't happen that way. Uh, and that's part of addiction where you make the excuse. Uh, yep. Uh, but I didn't know that at that particular time. Mm -hmm. Let's cut through the chase. The first hit was for the city of Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And then despite anything I could do, I went back out on my own and used again. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the rationalization. Was there a curiosity, though, about it that it really didn't impact me that much that long? So what's the big deal? Uh, Let's see if it really was legit maybe maybe now but not then okay because that's something when you i've replayed this thousands of times <laughs> oh i'm sure yeah. uh in my mind uh and, and you can rationalize it uh it's like the first time you've had too much to drink mm -hmm. did you really make it home or <laughs> did you just have too much to drink how did this happen and then it's like well since i made it home I didn't drink too much. Right. Must not be a big deal. Yeah. Must right. not be. And, but. I can't find my car. But yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> but it's not a big deal. I don't know where that dent came from. Yeah. But it was kind of like that because, but dope is different. Hmm. Uh, because there's no situation that you could rationalize as a police officer where it would be okay to use dope. Hmm. So the delusion, well, I was undercover. I didn't do anything wrong. And then when I went out on my own to use, I can't, I don't have anyone I can tell about this. Mm -hmm. That's the haunting thing mm -hmm. that I didn't have anybody sure. that I can say, hey, this was real. Mm -hmm. uh, and then knowing that uh, the part that drink brings the tears today as there wasn't someone out there like me today right? that I could walk up to and say, beyond losing everything, sure. uh, this is what I need to tell you. Mm -hmm. And not worry about, am I going to lose a job? Uh, not worry about, am I going to lose a family? But uh, am I going to lose me? What would your wife's reaction have been had you told her? 
I don't know. Uh, that That's the saddest thing of not knowing or not having that discussion with the people that you would say are the closest people mm-hmm. to you. Sure. Uh, what would have been the reaction of my partner? Right. I mean, because I was detached from a work unit that was an intelligence squad to start becoming a narcotics officer. Mm-hmm. So the people that I, quote, trusted the most, I was detached from. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. And while we can look at all the dynamics now, mm-hmm. we couldn't see it then. I couldn't see it then. But when it all came crashing down, uh, it ended up me being in an office mm-hmm. surrounded by a bunch of uh, supervisors. And I still remember what one supervisor told me, and it actually saved my life. Wow. Uh, he told me, you are going to get, he says, Cleo, get prepared. What you're getting ready to go through is going to be incredible to you. He didn't say the word for you. Right. He said to you. to you. I remember those words. Uh, even when uh, I got arrested, mm-hmm. uh, I got arrested. I didn't have any drugs in my person. They charged me with conspiracy charges because of the ancillary actions that people do when they're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, how long did they let? How long did they suspect or kind of build a case on you, basically, before they actually? arrested you. They didn't have the opportunity to do that because I basically had told them that I didn't want to do, I didn't, I, I just stopped doing any cases. Uh, I didn't want to have nothing to do with it. Uh, that was during my time where I was actually fighting. Uh, there's a thing that they, they train every police officer to win the fight. Mm-hmm. I was in the fight. I was in the fight for me. I, I knew I was losing the fight, but I was trying to find a way to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, the saddest thing was once it actually happened, it happened spontaneously. I was out with a group of people and I was using and I got in a fight and I got injured. Mm-hmm. Now that time they sent me uh, to the hospital. Uh, it was a nearby hospital. And what happened was I had my undercover car with me uh, and I ended up driving to a police station, driving inside the police station, and literally just crashed the car at the curb. I was injured, and I staggered into the police, you know, I staggered into the police department. And, of course, you have an undercover police officer that's injured. Mm -hmm. They sent me to the hospital. They found out, of course, I'm under the influence. Uh, I set a record. I had the highest concentration of crack cocaine at that particular hospital. I remember the doctor telling me of anyone that ever ever lived. Wow. Uh, Is that all? Were you using other things also or that was? No, it was just crack cocaine Uh, that that I would have known. I wouldn't have had. You didn't experiment with other things because of that. No. Uh, uh, I think in the back of my mind, uh, and it was tough to admit then, but there was a part of me uh, who wanted, I wanted to kill myself. 
uh, and that was the way I was going to do it. So uh, being arrested, having a broken jaw was not a big deal. Uh, I was just waiting for the next opportunity. Uh, in the twisted state of mind that I was in, I wanted the funeral. Uh, Not the benefits necessarily. The benefits didn't matter. To the family. Good. I wanted the funeral. Yeah. Uh, so let's make this a line of duty somehow. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I was trying to make it into something that it wasn't. Sure. But, uh, I mean, I reflected, and that's what it came to. But right then, that's kind of where my mindset was. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I found out that there were, I was going to get charged with a number of crimes, I didn't think a lot about that. I kind of thought that somebody... Uh, this is part of the process, and somebody would say, well, this is what we have to do to get you into rehab. Sure. Because they told me, the department says, well, we're going to help you. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But, help you what? That was but the I actually believed it. Sure. I mean, if me getting arrested was the vessel to me getting help, I, I trusted the mm -hmm. department with my life. Yeah. And even at my worst moment, I trusted them with my life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't trust me with my life because I wouldn't have known where to go get help anyway. And there probably wasn't a lot. No, back then that, there wasn't a lot. I'm uh, so fortunate because of what happened with that, mm -hmm. uh, that there's people like you, there's people like me mm -hmm. that, uh, and I want to give the department some credit because departments have matured a little bit. A little bit. I'm not going to say a lot of it, right. but, but a little bit. Sure. Uh, to where if they run into somebody, uh, their response may be a little bit different. But, Especially if the officer asks for help. Yeah, if That's he asks for key. help. That's the key. got to go but say, I got a problem. I didn't ask for help. I got caught. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when an officer gets caught, it's more to prove to the rest of the community mm -hmm. that we will bring crushing response mm -hmm. to anybody that tarnishes the badge. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have to think, uh, I, I actually thought, because during this process, I had intended on killing myself. Have to give my supervisors and leadership people credit, they disarmed me in time. Uh, they must have been thinking proactively of what I was planning on doing. Sure. Uh, the difference was I killed myself slower. Mm -hmm. And professionally. Yes. Professionally, I killed myself slower. When in reality, uh, Phoenix Police Department had ultimate responsibility here because they're putting somebody in a position with zero training right. and without the resources because you said it the first time you used was for phoenix police for, yeah. was for phoenix yeah. and you had no way of knowing the rest of what would happen and again for you to even walk in and say i did this them to kind of poo poo on it well the blood the test showed you didn't right and that's kind of their role and then they just let you spiral out 
Well, that's honestly the, that's the reality of what happened. But my professional disclaimer, my personal disclaimer will always be, well, I didn't give them a choice. I wish they had known better. Sure. But even if they didn't, I didn't give them the option. That's the way that that helps me rationalize. Sure. And walk where I'm at now. Uh, because I didn't get the memo mm -hmm. that uh, it was some 30 years later that the supervisor, uh, I, I had an encounter with him. He says, if we had known everything that we knew, we probably would have approached that differently. Maybe. Maybe. But I'm not sure if I had been in his shoes if I would have approached it differently. Uh, but it's hard to tell me that after <laughs> I went to prison. Sure. Uh, it's it's tough yeah. to tell me that after uh, I faced the scorn of my own actions. Sure. Uh, because the first thing they did was to make sure that there was no way I could say it was a uh, it was an industrial. Right. That was the first thing they took away. I bet uh, they did. <laughs> boy, they, I mean, they were like, uh, "You shouldn't have had our car. Actually, you stole it." Oh, oh, oh you stole it. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, uh, and you know, and this is the problem, and this is still the problem with law enforcement. Something bad has to happen before changes are made on things. Yeah. Whether it's the type of guns you're carrying to this type of stuff with lack of training, what they they don't know what they don't know, but they think they know it all until no. they don't know it. And no. then all of a sudden now we gotta put somebody up here and hang them out here so we can display. Here's what will happen to you. Knee-jerk reactions. Well, absolutely. And then make changes. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I use this, and you probably heard me say it. I'm looking for the next Cleo Lewis. Sure. Uh, and they're out there. Yeah. And I'm looking to help some person that's well beyond the line, mm -hmm. either mitigate uh, the situation to get them some help. And I'd like to think that the profession matter, but it doesn't. You matter. Sure. It comes to a point to where it's not, are you going to retire? Uh, that incident changed my perspective of, can I retire? Mm -hmm. That incident changed, am I going to rehabilitate myself? And even if I rehabilitate myself to the ninth degree, mm -hmm. I am never going to get that job back again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my focus is on helping people get themselves back. Sure. Uh because uh, you lose everything. Right. Uh, the family relationship disintegrated. Uh, I actually use that as an excuse. Well, the reason why this happened, I had to, I had to find something. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't say, well, uh, hey, guys, uh, the training sucked. Mm -hmm. Because it worked for the other people. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the whatever we didn't get, it turned out to where some people told me, well, maybe you weren't mature enough to be able to be put in that particular situation. I'm not sure if anybody is. Well, uh, and, and yeah. the thing about, but you got to look at the other people in the doing the job you're doing. Did they wind up with a gun at the back of their head at any point? I don't know of anyone else mm -hmm. uh, that has ever dealt with that. Mm -hmm. uh, you hear rumors that, it's something 
may have happened to somebody else. Sure. But that's not the di- that's not the discussion that you have in in-service training. Right. Hey, uh, <laughs> this is what can happen to you. Right. Uh, if you make a tactical error, because the way I look at it, uh, when I talk to new officers, hey, if you ever deal with that situation, there's nothing wrong with turning around and leaving. No deal is so significant. They ain't going to change their job tomorrow. They'll be there tomorrow. Yeah, they'll be there. Some, some patrol officer or some motor will stop your bad guy Yes, and catch him. Yes. That way. Uh, yes. It's not that serious. I don't care where you work at. Right. Uh, I mean, but uh, the mentality I had, and it was classic type A, mm-hmm. uh, I've got to win this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most healing part of this whole thing was to realize, I don't know what the department lost but it's not my job to fix that right now. Right. I know what I lost. Sure. So I got to work on what I lost. Sure. Uh, and the result of that, I'd love to tell you that prison worked. How long were you in there? Uh, I was sentenced for five years. Uh, they sent me out of state, uh, which was kind of funny because it kind of reminds me of the movie. Uh, national security with Eddie Murphy. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, the guy shows up at the prison and everybody knows who he is. Uh, that's what happened when I, they sent me out of state. It was like, we know who you are. Really? Uh, so surprise, but, surprise. Uh, you know, the, the thing about that was after it was all over, then I realized that I was bitter and anger, mm-hmm. angry. But I wasn't bitter and anger at the department. Hmm. I was bitter and angry at me. Sure. So I took it out on me, and I fostered a 15-year addiction. Yes, I pretended to get rehab Mm -hmm. when I needed to get rehab or when I was forced to get rehab. But until I actually had to look at me, could I get help? That was tangible towards me being able to do the most important thing I needed to do. It wasn't about forgiving the department. It was about forgiving me. Well, and that shows you can't force rehab. You can't. You know, they'll go in and they'll say all the right things and do all the right stuff. And then they walk out, they're going to do what they're going to (laughs) do. Absolutely. Uh, It was my daughter that actually created the rehab opportunity. Nice. Uh, I was homeless. Wow. My daughter looked at me, and I remember I had a big, the beer had graduated from the 12-ounce version uh, to the 40-ounce cheap version. Uh, okay. It The cigarettes had graduated from my favorite to any cigarettes. Mm-hmm. But anyway, those were my addictions. And... We're at a family gathering that they some kind of way convinced me that I could come to. Uh, And she's talking to me, and she's a banker. I was so proud of her. (laughs) And she has this cheap, have you ever seen a cheap Walmart ball? She's talking to me, and she says, Dad, you remember you used to say we could have 15 minutes every day to talk with you? 
And I said, yes, I remember I used to say that. And she says, can I, can we talk for 15 minutes? Nice. And I said, certainly. And I wanted to reinforce that conversation with a swig of beer. And she says, dad, could you not? It was the first time I had to stop doing me <laughs> for somebody else. Wow. And she threw the ball at me and I caught the ball. And she says, did you drop the beer? But I put the beer down because she thought, I'm throwing, and she's throwing this ball to nice. me. And I says, why are you throwing this stupid ball to me? And she said, Dad, you never done that with me. Wow. And how old is she at this point? Well, was she, she already was, a banker at that point? Yeah, she was a banker. So oh. she was in her middle 20s. Oh. Mm. Uh, wow. And then I realized that it wasn't just about me. Uh what she didn't get yeah what she didn't get it wasn't just about me she deserved to get that mm -hmm. and uh i took away a lot doing my the selfishness of my addiction i took away a lot refusing to heal uh and i took away a lot from the fight sure. you see when we train people to fight, if you're going to fight that hard for the department, uh, and fire's in a different dynamic than police. Mm -hmm. However, there's things that I talk to firefighters too that the department would just soon forget about. Sure. There's a fight. It's just a different yes, fight. Right. It's a different type fight. Uh, but if you would fight that hard to effect an arrest, mm -hmm. to stop that suspect from winning a fight that's going to harm you, what will you do for you? Sure. Uh, will you, there, it may not be good help out there. The thing that I didn't do, I gave up on me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, Yes, we can use the excuse of addiction, mm -hmm. but I looked back and I gave up on me. I can't beat myself up for it, but it's an acknowledgement that many people that I talk to now that are dealing with life-challenging issues, yep. the first thing I engage them to do is to make a thorough self-assessment sure. of where you're at. You may not know where you want to go, right? but make that assessment of where you're at. And I didn't do that for me, but all the things I learned, I had to learn it the way I learned it mm -hmm. to make me better <laughs> for yeah. someone else. Well, you can't change what you don't acknowledge. Absolutely. And again, but, and I think that's where our beliefs systems are very similar with God and the fact that we take the bad and turn that for good yeah. in helping other people. Then there's, there's purpose behind that pain. Right. And that's when you heal. That that's the part of healing because when people say, well, uh, I've never been suicidal hmm. and I have to be very honest in my story. Uh, -huh. uh going up to slap the person in prison that was in charge of the gang. 
<laughs> just to let them know that you're not taking it. <laughs> uh, it's suicidal. Uh, it, it's suicidal. Yeah, I don't boy. know. I, I don't. I didn't win all the fights, but uh, some of the things that I done uh, to survive were quite suicidal. I mean, uh, refusing to change, mm -hmm. uh, refusing to adapt. Uh, survival at all costs uh, is somewhat suicidal. I, I remember walking across city streets uh, not caring if I got hit by a car. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, some of the things I've done, you know, people don't understand what suicidal is until mm -hmm. you face that. That's it. Uh, we often use the term, well, you've just had idolations. Well, I, I'm not a clinician. Mm -hmm. uh, because most of the clinicians that talk to people about that have never been at that threshold. Don't have a clue. Right. Uh, and the, the part that I remember is there were a small group of people that uh, treated me with dignity and kindness, and they actually kept me alive. Wow. Uh then they made me find purpose in my situation. Mm -hmm. So when I look back at all of that, to endure that, to be where I'm at, mm -hmm. uh, and I still say it again, I look for the next Cleo Lewis. Sure. Uh, because if I can find that person early, yes, I may find somebody that's going to deal with a lot of issues, but maybe not catastrophe. Well, and if you can find them when the job is not in jeopardy, where where you can still save their job, because sometimes the job is the only thing that keeps them from going to that next level. The you know yeah. when they start talking about officers that are suicidal in, in the mental health world, talking about it, and they'll tell me, "Oh, well, you're negligent and irresponsible." When you don't take an officer's gun and I go, hold the phone, because the minute I jeopardize his job, he's got nothing left. He yeah. will go ahead and do this. And they don't understand that part of it. And, I, you know, suicidal in this industry, as you know, high risk behaviors where the type A says it can't happen to me. That is not suicidal. The type A, that high-risk behaviors, I don't care if it happens to yes. me, <laughs> that is the suicidal yeah. part of it. And there is a difference in it. There is a difference in what happened in my life pattern is I went from the type A to where this can't happen to the type A, I don't care if it happened. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I could translate day in and day out. It's something that even in a casual discussion I could have with an officer or former officer, retired officer, uh, I, I wish that police departments, uh, for as much as we say the Veterans Administration doesn't quite get it, mm -hmm. I wish that police, off, police departments especially, and even fire departments, could treat their employees the way the Veterans Administration treats former military members uh, to where they'll treat them no matter what. 
not kick them to the curb. Yes, uh, because it's real easy because once you retire, mm-hmm. once you resign, they don't know who you are <laughs> and you're no, no longer their problem. Right. But I would probably be easy to say 80% of people that retire still have that one call or a series of calls that traumatizes them to sure. the extent to where they can't function safely. Sure. Uh, and it's, I could easily look at police chiefs and say, that doesn't happen. I know they've got to be smarter than me. And if I can well, figure now out. Well, let's not get crazy. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying. Let's I, I, not I, get know, crazy yeah, here. Uh, I, I would want to think they're smarter than me and they realize this too. Uh-huh. But let's put the money where your mouth is. Yep. Because I hear a lot of mouth about we're having a tough time yeah. hiring people. Yeah. And I see why. Uh, their career is a calling. Mm-hmm. There are some people that would do this job no matter what you pay them. Absolutely. If you take care of them. Absolutely. But the level of scrutiny that they commonly and casually place on the average police officer, who wants to do that? (laughs) Well, and, you know, talking about chiefs and those at the top being smart, they first of all, they've gotten where they came from, if they ever really came from doing the job, because some have not. Uh, I can remember in Montgomery, Alabama, the former chief there uh, you know, he carried the mayor's briefcase probably the first six months of, of his career and then was moved into places. I, I don't think John was on patrol more than maybe about six months in his whole career yeah. and wound up being a chief. <laughs> and so you go, yeah, he ain't got, he didn't have a clue. And he didn't have a clue. Um, but when you start to look at their the way they handle things, I, I just have to question intelligence in a lot of them. You know, they talk about the mental wellness. So what do they do? They hire a mental wellness person in their department. And you go, yeah, that's going to open that door. They're going to come running in that person's <laughs> office. And let's put them next to the chief, too. Yeah. So let's make sure they're at headquarters where everybody sees them coming and going right. from the mental wellness person. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and the person, I mean, it's kind of interesting because there is a bad guy mentality, especially in police departments. Mm-hmm. We train people to hunt and capture the yes. bad guy. Yes. So if your patrol officers are looking for people that are engaged in criminal behavior mm-hmm. and there's not a change that happens in your leadership, they're looking for people that are engaged in like behavior. Mm-hmm. And they're not dealing with members of the public they're dealing with members of the agency. Mm-hmm. And so your policy standpoint is you're, if you're forced to hire a psychologist mm-hmm. that has never been a police officer, never been affiliated <laughs> with law enforcement, and we're trying to say, well, people in law enforcement, we hire law enforcement uh, from the general public. No, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, that's a myth. Not uh, the ones that stay. Well, the ones who no, stay in it. The, the, you don't. It, it, uh, doesn't, it doesn't happen. Police officers are not hired from the, the general because the type of people that you want to be police officers aren't going to be working at Circle K. Right. It, it just doesn't happen right. like right. that. 
the expectations you have of police officers aren't what your major corporate environment has. Sure. Uh, you have people that you endear with life and death decisions mm -hmm. under life and death scrutiny. And uh, the line, the line police officer that I talk to mm -hmm. feels betrayed by their leadership. Absolutely. Well, they are, well it, here, listen, <laughs> and I brought this up yesterday. When someone moves out of patrol or whatever into another specialty or whatever, and they get in trouble, where do we put them? Back to patrol. Well, I can probably tell you that uh, it's going to be pretty good a department move. But it's back we to patrol. We need to stop using that term because they, I've heard yeah. people walk up to me as a pastor and says, i done something so egregious, even God is mad at me. I said, well, what are you talking about? Right. Uh, I got a good a department move. We call it a God move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to go back to patrol and you're going to be working the worst shifts yeah. with the worst days off. And it's your foundation of your agency, but we will but we will use that as discipline. Yeah. When there are people truly who do their whole career want to do patrol their whole career. Yeah. Mark Valenzuela was one of those. He he wanted to be out with the people, making a difference, that kind of stuff. But then it's the dumping ground when you get in trouble. That boy, talk about killing morale, yeah. especially yeah. in patrol. It's tough when all the calls of service come from from patrol and patrols expected to respond to everything. Sure. A homicide investigator isn't going to be dealing with an assault that doesn't result in a homicide. Right. They, right. they can just bypass that, but patrol's the dumping ground. Sure. And uh, unfortunately, patrol is also everybody's psychologist after I mean, yes, we talk. We don't want patrol to have mental health calls. Well, I've been. Don't call a mobile crisis team. Right. I've been. I watch mobile crisis team make appointments with people. Sure. sure. And then I said, so you just handed that guy a business card. Mm -hmm. uh, he's ready to fight everybody in the neighborhood. Yep. So what's going to happen? Well, if he does something else. We call the police. And what happens is a three-year patrol officer shows up, and he's the stop button. Mm -hmm. the, family's, the, the, the family's looking at this like, uh, we don't want you guys to fix that. Right. But there's no one else that can fix it. Right. I mean, I don't know. I, it's a policing, pretty messed up system. Yeah, it was so different. Uh, when I look at what police officers are dealing with today, mm -hmm. uh, I understand that they're going to have problems. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, we send a real mixed message. And, again, this is where the top of the food chain, they don't know what they don't know. They should have a little more common sense than this, but I don't give them that much credit. Um, but when you look at programs like the CIT model out of mm -hmm. Memphis, and you train officers 40 hours in how to deal with the schizophrenics and the mentally ill and all that stuff. And what do they stick right in the middle of that training? Now let's have a section on law enforcement stress and mental wellness. Yeah. And you're going, we're going to put the law enforcement stuff in the middle of the schizophrenia stuff and all the mental illness, and we wonder why officers don't want to talk to somebody. Or they'll have the person at the department 
that they can call to come out and deal with the mentally ill. And that same person is also going to be the one who deals with the officers (laughs) when they're in crisis. So the message is you're mentally ill, just like the people I deal with out here in the public. They don't even have the common sense to keep this stuff separate. It drives me crazy. Even if they do keep it separate, it's the stigma that how long is the department going to carry you? Oh, yeah. I mean, how long are they really going to carry you? If it really goes bad Sure. and they refer you for the few sessions that you get. Right. I mean, uh, we didn't learn enough from Craig Tiger. Right. Well, you can get 36 sessions now Yeah. versus six. uh, I needed to be in treatment for probably five years. Well, but the problem is, is if the (laughs) treatment isn't pertinent to the person. No. Because, again, it's not about mental illness. Y'all, been, y'all are crazy. You're all crazy. But you've been MMPI'd, all of that stuff. We psych eval this. This isn't mental illness. This is a whole different no. issue. It, it is we are putting people in positions to do and see and have to be exposed to things we haven't prepared them for and expect them to be robots, not human beings. And don't tell them, it, what was the point yesterday that Sergeant Bird made about um, in the in the trainings that we tell you to, it, he didn't use the example, get enough sleep, but that was the one that went through my head. Make sure you're getting enough sleep, but they don't tell you how to get enough sleep. No. And it's the same thing in this. You know, we hammered them yesterday. They're still teaching. Keep work at work and home and home. And I'm like, are you people complete idiots? Well, Can't be done. Look what's happening all across the country. Everybody's redesigning their use of force policies. Oh, boy. Have to- you seen the new one here they're coming oh, out with? Yeah, we'll talk about that off air because we're yeah, going to do a whole podcast uh, on yeah, that. Maybe. Yeah, we could. We could but I, I, we're talking about that, but we haven't quite got that to our employees. Oh I mean, God. we're talking about how we're going to treat the suspect, but what about the wholeness? What about the wellness of our employee? Sure. How long are we going to keep a person that's been wounded in the line of duty? Mm-hmm. We can look at all a lot of major departments. Are we going to allow that person to retire? Are oh. we going to hold that position Or are we going to find a way to get them out either on a medical or early retirement Mm -hmm. or, uh, and. And they're fighting the medicals on people who should be getting them. Well, they're fighting because it costs money. Yeah, but it didn't come out of that chief's pocket. So what do you care? You know, truthfully. Well, but here's what I want to see happen because I've had several clients that this has happened with. You have. Three or four psychologists say this person clearly has PTSD. No question about it. They need to medically retire. And then the department will send them to an IME where it comes out and some crazy psychiatrist will say, oh, they're in remission. I want that officer to walk back into HR and go, give me my badge and gun. Then I'm coming back to work because they're not yeah. going to let them back <laughs> out when back. you've got three, but you're denying them a medical. So now what happens? I don't think employee wellness is a police department function. It's not a priority, that's I, for sure. I don't think it's something that, for as much as they tell me that they want to do, mm-hmm. I don't think it's something that 
they should be allowed to do. It should be a separate department. The same person that turns that faucet, if they're dealing with an issue that keeps them from being able to turn that faucet and plumb, Mm -hmm. once we have an issue with a police officer that says, you know what, maybe whatever they're dealing with keeps them from carrying that weapon. Because that's what they're really scared of. Uh, and rightfully so. That's what so. we're really scared of. And sure. if we're that scared, then if that happens at out of the, the first call, uh, the first call I ever dealt with as a police officer was so traumatic. Mm-hmm. It was, I we watched a person burn to death. Wow. That was my first call out to shoot. <laughs> wow. Uh I thank God for my training officer because he allowed me to deploy the fire extinguisher. He knew it wasn't going to work. So you can at least try. I feel like you tried. He allowed me just to try. And he says, okay, uh, you can get the uh, dust off your uniform Mm -hmm. uh, because it happened on the borderline between Phoenix and Glendale. It was Glendale's call. Mm. So we gave gave it to Glendale. But we went back in service to take calls. Sure. (laughs) that's the police department's mentality, but I don't think the police department's sophisticated enough to decide if their officers are healthy enough. No. And if we have to have an outside agency, let an outside agency do it, but be accept their determinations. Accept their determination because we have the Industrial Police uh, Commission fighting career officers over injuries that they've been medically retired for. Yes. Uh, it's always the fight. And yes. officers don't, they already have to fight yep. in the few times where an arrest goes bad. But the last thing their families are thinking, and I'm hearing this feedback, oh, yeah. is we have to fight the people we trusted the most. It's <laughs> number one stressor. You know, and it's one added stressor that keeps them from working. Right. But yet we tell you when you're hired, we're a family and we're going to take care of you until we don't. Well, they leave that part out. Until it's time for the divorce. Yes. And and, and you don't know the divorce is coming. <laughs> we're just going to serve you with it. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, the paperwork's already written for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, and, and this is a topic that we could go on for episodes and certainly will follow up with this because, you know, we are seeing changes. I, I think the changes, though, on the mental wellness side, it's checks and boxes or that's the perception. So the departments can say, well, you know, we offered this. We've got EAP. We've got this. We've got 13 clinicians. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but you, we, we're going to cancel all your off days and you got to work 41 days straight, 12 exactly. hour shifts. Um, yeah. You know, you go eh, a little bit of a contradiction in that stuff. But the sad part, and I think a lot of this comes back to the people that too many of the people, not all, because I'm a huge Mark Lamb fan, but too many people that wind up at the top of these food chains. um, And, you know, probably another month or two down the road, I'm going to start calling names. uh, But it's power and control. They want the ability to get rid of whoever they want to get rid of for whatever reason they want to get rid of them. And it's not, hey, let's pass these people off and let somebody outside the agency handle it, get them healthy so they can stay, start, keep working or whatever. I want the complete control and power of it. 
I think it's set up that way. Uh, and unfortunately, most city charters are written where you have one person mm-hmm. that has the authority of the police chief or the sheriff, and then everybody else is appointed under them. Sure. Uh, the personnel rules are just for the employee's sake. However, uh, unions used to have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Now, now they, don't, they don't have as much power. But unfortunately, the employee is there at the whim and design yeah. of the person that has the authority. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that works good, sure. but many times it doesn't work quite so good. Well, uh, I think the problem with the chief, though, is he's at the he serves at the discretion of the mayor or the city manager or whatever, where sheriffs have they they serve because they're elected. Right. And, I, and I do think that makes a huge difference. It, it is a huge difference because the police chief does have another issue, especially when we look at some of the larger departments. Mm-hmm. There are six people. Even though you serve at the pleasure of a city manager right. or, or city council, right. there are the six council. people. That can do your job. Sure. Uh, Won't, if, but can. <laughs> well, yeah, but I don't know if they want the job, <laughs> but don't. I think a lot of them may want your job, but they, they can do your job. Sure. For the line police officer out there, uh, unfortunately, although we have thousands of line police officers, the recruitment of police officers has shown us that there's not a lot of people that can do their job. And if we know that, we should actually tailor all of our employee wellness programs yes. mm-hmm. to take care of that line person yes. rather than ensure that the person at the top of the food chain is doing well and they can make decisions concerning those line people. Sure. Uh, we learned something. Uh, we're learning something when we talk about use of force. Mm-hmm. I think there's something that we're not com- committed to telling the community, that in certain situations, our officers are going to do things that may commit, that create a lot of stress, mm-hmm. not just for you, but for them also. Absolutely. Uh, conduct yourselves accordingly. Absolutely. Uh, that's something our officers need to hear from their leadership. Mm-hmm. I can't, I couldn't imagine another career field where people go to go to work every day. And I can look at my situation, but that was the extreme. I wish somebody would have told me, hey, when you take this specialized assignment, there's a potential that if this goes crazy, (laughs) you could be indicted and you may be in prison. Now we're telling, if we told officers, hey, as a result of you pinning on this badge Mm -hmm. and if you don't get help for what's going on under the badge, there could be situations that occur in your life that you may be dealing with an addiction and potentially imprisonment. Oh, I think it's a greater likelihood now of officers going to prison for doing their job than oh, getting yeah. killed in the line of duty. Amen. And mm-hmm. that's why I was so thrilled when my son said, you know what? He had wanted to be a cop. God said no. And I was thrilled when he went another direction. Well, because that was my biggest fear, and we're seeing it happen. If it wasn't so, we wouldn't be so busy. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. You're busy. I'm busy. Yes, absolutely. I know the employment wellness people. 
they're busy. Even though their system's broken, mm-hmm. they're still busy. Yeah. And maybe the people that structure those need to be looking at saying, we're going to be busy, but let's be busy for the right reason. And let's all work at the same table and not be territorial. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we we don't have all the answers, but neither do they. And why, why it becomes so territorial, uh, that's the part that bugs me to death. You know, well, the, the license world, we work very well with some of the license world, but some of the license world's like, oh, don't go to Susan. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Why would you tell anybody that? Well, if it's going to get you help. Yes. Hey, recommend anything and everything. The more resources you have out there, the more people will get help. Mm-hmm. And that's what it really should one. be about. That's all it should be about. Uh, however, families too. there was a time where I didn't come. We would come to Tempe, working in Phoenix. We knew we had jurisdiction all over the state. Sure. We'd come to Tempe or Chandler just to do something, just to say we could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Was it, you know, and we got to get past that. Well, but the sad Uh, part is, is a lot of the reasons that some of the chiefs and command staff people don't want under the shield in their departments is because they don't have control of us. They know we don't keep notes and records. I've I've literally had them tell me that, that, and it started in Alabama with a sheriff that told me I was under a very minimal contract and he wanted off uh, information on a deputy and I like, I don't know what you're talking about. And his threat was, if you don't tell me what I want to know, then I'm not going to renew your contract. I went back, got the contract, wrote him a check for what he had written, tore the contract up, left the check on his desk and said, you are reimbursed fully. You will never control this. That's the reason why I refer people to you. (laughs) Because as a first responder, I keep records. And there's some situations I know intuitively mm-hmm. are dangerously close to where I may have to pick up the phone and make that next phone call. Mm-hmm. I want somebody to help the person heal yes. to where we never have to make that phone call. Right. Sure. I can't say that more emphatically. I agree. And if it's calling you mm-hmm. or sending a person down here, If they make it down here, they're not as dangerous as we thought they are. Absolutely. (laughs) No, I'm more dangerous than they are, um, and we'll get them into shape. But um, we hope you'll come back, because I think there's a whole lot more to this story. And uh, have you back on another episode talking about even more about mental wellness and all the good stuff that you're doing and the ways we can all work together. And can't thank you enough for taking the time out to be on here today. I survived the traffic, and <laughs> you know what? I just hope that we may some, have to go portable well, yeah, next there, time. There, there's somebody well. out there. Uh, yeah, I just want there's there's somebody out there that'll listen to it. Sure. And it's kind of interesting when we get together and talk. There's something easy that someone can find. Oh, I can't believe they said that. And you know what? I'm not in the I'm not in the appeasement business anymore. Yeah. I got to live with the asterisk that's assigned to my name, but guess what? I'm okay with that. Yes, absolutely. I just want the next person not to either get one or yep. we start helping people. Yep. Right. And and that's the thing to me. People like you, people like some of the others that we've dealt with, ought to be in every academy class telling their story. 
not from a place of pride and boast of, yeah, no. man, I, you know, did this, that, and the other, but a place of reality of where this job can go. Exactly. And how you can wind up there. And it's not as hard as people want no. you to think it is. It's it's a fine line. And we've seen a lot of this, whether it's narcotics, undercovers, using drugs and becoming addicted to other stuff happening uh, to the suicidal side of it, all of those things. We have to do a better job educating people going yeah. into this industry. That's where we drop the ball the most. No, nothing's worth you losing your life out here. Nope. It's really not. And there Nothing. are ways that we can utilize those people still being a part of the industry, so to speak, maybe not carrying the badge, but having carried it, that they can then help others not yeah. wind up just like with you. Because exactly. yeah. that's what it takes. There's not a Ph.D. out there who spent enough time in school that can relate to someone going through what you went through yeah. the way you can. That's the key. Thank you. And that's education doesn't do it. So uh, anything you got, Tom? No. We start wrapping this up. Uh, I'm sure that if there's anybody out there listening that uh, has issues or has been in this situation or whatever, I'm sure you'd be happy for them to reach out to you. And we'll make Absolutely. sure that your contact information, whether it's email, whatever you want to give to Joelle, that we can make sure they know how to contact you. And again, here at Under the Shield, when you call our 855-889-2348 number, that's our 24-hour number, please, please, please let it ring. If you hit extension one, you're going to get somebody. may take a few rings, depending on how busy we are, uh, but we will not have your phone number. So don't think, well, they'll see this number and call me back because all, all I have it programmed in my phone is UTS crisis. Same here. And uh, so... Please reach out to us. And families, again, we can't emphasize this enough. You can reach out to us also. Don't think it has to be the firefighter, the police officer, the military person. There may be things we can do, we can say, that can uh, help you get that person into us for help. But in the meantime, you deserve that same support system. So my cell number, if you want to talk to me directly, 334 Three two four three five seven zero, and I don't want to hear a doggone one of you people. I'm so sick of hearing, oh well, you have health issues. I, 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 you know, whatever. But call me, cut it out, stop the isolation. Um, I'm, I'm functioning at a hundred percent. Well, I can't say hundred percent. I don't know that I've ever functioned at hundred percent. But I am working seven days a week. I'm a big girl. If I don't feel good, I'll call you back. I promise. But cut that crap out. Call us. Text me during the daytime. Call me at night. Tom, your number? My phone number is 480-861-6574. Uh, just try to impress upon everybody that if you need help, it's not weakness reaching out for help. Amen. The hardest thing may be to pick up that phone, yep. but once you do it, you'll yep. be amazed at how much better you can actually feel. And 31 years of Under the Shield being in business tells you we do not violate that that confidence at all. And again, anonymity, anonymity is the strongest form of confidentiality. We take that very, very, very seriously. So call us, reach out to us anywhere we can help. Uh, we have a lot of resources here at Under the Shield, not just from what people perceive to be mental wellness. But you have to reach out to us. I don't worry about the ones that do reach out. I worry about the ones that won't reach no. out. Those are the ones that scare me to death. Uh, so stay safe out there. Take care. God bless you. God bless your families in this great nation that we live in. And uh, we hope you'll come back next time.